Hey guys, welcome to episode three, part two of Be Particular Out There. I'm your host, Dustin M. Thomas. In this two-part special, we're spending time with my great friend Saskia Vogel. If you haven't listened yet, please pause and take a moment to check out part one of this episode. Saskia did an amazing reading of her essay, Down the King's Trail. This piece just appeared in the latest issue of Elsewhere, a journal of place, straight out of Berlin. Speaking of straight out of Berlin, Saskia joins us for today's conversation from her flat there. So let's jump right on into the conversation where we delve more into the King's Trail, what she's been up to lately in Europe, and the ever-golden topic of porn. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my conversation with the wonderful Saskia Vogel. How's it going, Saskia? Hey, Dustin. It's, it's, it's all really good. I'm in Berlin today, and it is uh, gray and rainy, and the leaves are all turning colors, but we've had a bit of sun, so it's, it's a nice day when the sun comes out in autumn in Berlin, because <laughs> there's not much of it, actually, ever. I mean, in the winter months. How many weeks of fall do you get? You know, I don't really know. Since uh, since my husband and I moved to Berlin, we've we've been doing a heck of a lot of traveling. Um, so we haven't really spent that much time here, sort of season to season. Um, I think this might be my first fall in Berlin, and the leaves have been getting steadily redder over the past, I guess, ten days. Um, anyway. <laughs> No, it's like I was here in Atlanta. We we really only have three weeks of fall before it just gets cold as shit. I mean, so before we moved here, and I guess also thinking about um, the imagination or the the idea of the Arctic and snowy landscapes, I I fell into this massive panic when I was still living in London. Um, cause we were getting ready to move to Berlin, and the Two visits I had taken to Berlin before were in February, where my dad would come from the States and go to this produce convention. It's sort of, um, I'm not entirely sure if it's Europe's largest or the world's largest meeting of like fresh fruit and vegetable salesmen and suppliers in the world. Um, and it's, it, the weather was so horrendous. The sky was constantly black and this, the streets were covered with like rolling waves of frozen like snow and you know you looked out the window and all you saw were sort of people slipping and falling and breaking their hips and when it was clear that we were moving to Berlin I basically spent like 18 months on the internet looking for appropriate winter gear because as a California girl I am really used to visiting the snow but also going home when I've had enough of it um you know your weekend skiing in Mammoth or whatever um <laughs> So I was in a, I was in a full panic um, when we came, and the, the winters are are odd. We had sort of really really snowy, terrible winters um, for, but only for like three weeks. Nothing has been as bad as those weeks that I experienced those Februarys ago. Let's talk about King's Trail for a second, okay? Oh sure, I'll bore you with the weather. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. It, it, it's a significant thing, I think, for. A girl from Los Angeles. I mean, I've, I've only really experienced a few, so I think they're, they're still quite novel in a way. You know, the idea that things do drastically change and you get, and you get sucked into a rhythm of, of being as, as the seasons move anyway. Hmm. So well, at least justifying you, you my weather conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you don't have to drive with, you know, idiots in the rain, right? Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. No storm watch <laughs> here. It's just called weather. 
It's going to drizzle, guys. <laughs> Be prepared to leave two hours early. Uh, King's Trail. So King's Trail. you just wanted to take a walk. Explain I, that. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, um, I, I went to high school in, in Sweden because my mom is Swedish and we moved there for a while. And uh, after graduation, one of my best friends went to go hike the King's Trail. And I just thought it looked so awesome. You know, she was there in sort of, I want to say, June, July-ish, um, hiking up Sweden's tallest mountain, or highest mountain. And I just thought that's clearly the coolest thing you can do. And I think the imagination of the north of Sweden, like what that space is and what it means and who lives there and what it's like, you know, it's kind of, I, I didn't really know much about it. And, but it has, it occupies a kind of magical place because Sweden's a really, it's a very long country. And this, this um, trail that we hiked, the King's Trail, it's all within the Arctic Circle. So I, I don't know, it just seemed impossible and impossibly far away and impossibly exotic to go to this space. And uh, I, my husband and I take a holiday with two of our sort of best friends from London, um, another couple every year, kind of a let's not lose touch with each other now that we don't live, well, we still live in the same house. So now that we don't share the same house anymore, let's not be strangers. Um, and Johnny uh, last year had sort of declared, hey, let's, let's go see the meteor crater in Arizona and the Grand Canyons. And this year he said, you know, I really wanna do something completely different. No more America, no more desert, I was like, all right, I have the opposite of that. And it's been this sort of lifelong dream. And it is billed as a, a pretty simple, straightforward walk. And in a lot of ways, it, it is. Uh, we, just, we just got really unlucky with the weather. <laughs> well, talk, about, talk about how massive this thing is, because I, I don't think a lot of people understand how massive the King's Trail can be. And um, did you guys, I don't, uh, it sounds like you didn't, um, get to hike the entirety of it, right? You just did one portion. Yeah, so um, it's it's for it's about four hundred and forty kilometers long, and it stretches from um, the northernmost trailhead is is just outside a little 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 town. The internet told me eighty five people live there year round. Um, called Abisko, that's on the edge of a really big lake. I think it's Sweden's seventh, seventh largest lake um, that sort of runs along the border of Norway and Sweden. So if you imagine Scandinavia, it's kind of almost as north as you can go in Sweden. Um, and it stretches down just south-ish. It kind of meanders southwards for about 440 kilometers. And it's just, it's vast. Um, it's supposed to be Europe's last remaining wilderness, which I think is a really shocking thing to imagine when you think about, for example, just how, how much space there is in the world, but also how much space is not wild. Right. Um, does that answer your massive question? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's pretty massive. It's just a big, empty, I mean, full, but empty of standard well, villages and civilization you know yeah. well i think in america people they don't understand how kind of serious urbanization is in other parts of the world like 
that is a very small place to be considered just wilderness compared to America where you can almost go into any state and find wilderness that's nowhere near a city. Um, mm. I mean, to be fair, like the, the there's not much that's that's up there. Sweden um, uh, has the, the sort of north of Sweden has been sort of consistently depopulated um, as industries have shifted timber and mining and God knows what. Um, and so I think most of the population lives in the lower third of the country. So, you know, when you take the bus between the biggest city in the north, which is called Kiruna, um, and you drive to, say, the southern, the trailhead that we picked up to get to Kebnekaisa after we turned back, you know, you're just, you're, you're driving past trees and moose and lakes with the odd sort of house. I mean, it's definitely not, to, to call it urban would, would would be absolutely wrong. I mean, it's really <laughs> far out there. There's a there's a great book by um, a girl called Ida Linda called You Travel North to Die, and she creates this amazing landscape. Uh, sort of, she, she she paints a picture of the North as this like very kind of twin peaksian, like a Lynchian kind of space of possibility for extreme beauty and terror. Um, the, the book is kind of has a has a sort of a natural born killers kind of plot to it in parts and things. So that's cool. You so, know, I think it is one of those spaces that is very because it is kind of alien to many. It, it is a really fertile fertile ground for the imagination. So did you guys have to pull any kind of Jack London shit, like cutting wolves open, warming your hands? <laughs> no. The, the last day, <laughs> on the last day we were um, hiking, it was the perfect end because we had been seeing all these lemmings, just lemmings and lemmings and lemmings scurrying did everywhere. Did you follow them? No. <laughs> I mean, no. <laughs> bad, that's a bad joke. Bad, bad they joke. Lo- well, they looked at us and they, they, they decided to go the other way, which, you know, yeah. Anyway, on the last day of the trail, they, um, it was like dry and beautiful and warm and we were walking and suddenly there was this lemming just like splayed on its back with like its gut ripped out and his tiny little claw was like hooked onto a bit of viscera and his little mouth was open and his little teeth were sharp and it looked like he was sort of partly... A, like offering up this like bloody cavity to the world and while simultaneously sort of screaming his last, you know, screams. Um, <laughs> anyway, a bird had done a really good job of picking him clean, but they just leave these little husks of like furry lemming husks. I mean, we probably could have made a coat, all the like lemming husks that we found, just little, or like put a lot of pom-pom, lemming pom-poms on something. But so, so yeah, no, we didn't cut anything open. That's we left that to the to the birds of prey. If you had to give a voice to a dying lemming, what would it sound like? What do you think it would sound like? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I think of this one, I think he was just like, <laughs> like it's just this is like he just gave up, <laughs> <laughs> like a visceral exhale, just like like a high pitched whining dying exhale. Anyway, that poor little guy. <laughs> We took a picture of it. Nobody really wanted to, but I kind of, I kind of thought we had to. It seemed so fitting. The whole team was 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 
gung-ho about this, right? So there wasn't really a lot of convincing involved, I imagine. So what was the pregame like? Was everybody high spirits? Was everybody gung-ho about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, my husband and Johnny both grew up in the countryside, and um, my husband in Germany and Johnny in, in uh, sort of the border of England and Wales. Uh, he grew up in the sort of hiking around um, uh, sort of Tolkien country, you know, uh, what did he call it? the Black Hills and the Golden Valley and the Brecon Beacons and just some really wonderful mountains. So I think Johnny was really excited to, I mean, we all were, we all really love the wilderness. And Adela, his girlfriend, like me, grew up in a hot climate. Uh, the terrible thing is that she had never seen snow until she moved to England, like, I, I don't even know, not even seven years ago, I think. And so, um, I mean, suddenly she was standing sort of waist deep in snow in the Arctic Circle, which is pretty much the opposite of growing up on the northern coast of Africa, you know. Anyway, but yeah, no, everybody's pretty gung-ho. We, we, there's something, we have a really nice communal feel, I guess, whenever we travel, because we used to live together, so we know all those horrible, dirty annoying things that we all do on a regular basis and have just kind of come to be used to it and work well together. Um, and we were all really up for a walk, um, a, a strenuous hike in places, of course, you know, but um, there, the, the funny thing when we were preparing, we, we kind of divide labor up, you know, um, in a, in an interesting way, whenever we travel, um, uh, I usually do all the planning because I really like making itineraries and find it really easy to book plane tickets and get all those things together. And the boys kind of took care of the gear and Adela made some amazing uh, sort of packs of trail food. You know, she she really got into um, like optimized like morning oatmeal with milk powder. And, you know, okay. so it was a really... <laughs> exactly we got our bags of coca leaves from 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 the local population to keep our spirits high <laughs> keep the blood flowing exactly so yeah we were all r really really up for it I, I we're not really a complaining a complaining bunch which um which i think why it left such an impression on me to you know be sort of driven to quite such a limit on a day that we were clearly underprepared for but also if I may, if I may sort of be a little, um, express a bit of displeasure with the sort of Swedish Tourist Association who managed the trail and opened the trail in the 1900s, um, you know, literally the only advice we got was, uh, it's really beautiful out there. And if you have snowshoes, you guys will be fine. <laughs> you know, they could have said any number of things, um, it's an unseasonably cold and snowy year, um, lots of there will be lots of sort of sub snow sub ice um, water formations um, snow is much even though the sun is out 24 hours a day snow is apparently much more frozen in the mornings and the evenings which you know we could have been clever but we just weren't we just didn't think about when the snow <laughs> might be harder so I mean it, it, I think this this walk ended up being sort of uh, I guess you could call it a bit of a, a, a stupid an act of stupidity on our behalf or just not thinking yeah, i like to think of it as a testament of will right? well that huh? as well yes i'm gonna stay I mean... positive here right <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's just all these little things because we did so much research, you know, like we, we read up on all the travel sites and everything. And, you know, we consulted at least two guides at the Mountain Lodge in Nabisco. And, you know, we were like, cool, we will go and we will see how we do and we will test our limits. And if we if it's definitely not something we're up for, we're going to turn back. But by the time we were like, hmm, maybe we should turn back. It was sort of, um, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. We were kind of right in the middle of uh, a landscape that was increasingly becoming more terrifying the longer we were out in it, you know? Yeah, it sounded like a uh, very bright horror movie, like some something that, that Lars von Trier would do, you know what I mean? I just couldn't <laughs> stop thinking about the thing. I could not stop thinking about the thing. Um the, the Carpenter film, right? Yeah, yeah. Carpenter, I, not the new one, right? I was <laughs> right. <laughs> Just could not, could not stop thinking about it. I, yeah. Anyway, no, exactly. When I was reading, uh, when I was reading your piece, I was I, this totally looks like a Lars von Trier movie that could be extenuated for hours and hours and hours in a slow mo <laughs> shot of just terrifying everyone, just plum, you know, splunking down into the frozen lake and freezing your feet off. You've got something there. I feel like it could be a really good single take movie. It would be fantastic. I mean, I think I think a single take, like two hour film, would do really, really, would really do it justice. Because there was something. Because I think a single take might also encapsulate the sort of extreme monotony of the landscape. Like once you get so um, sort of the you know in the beginning it was in the lowlands it was just kind of pleasant and lovely and boggy in places and mountains all around and it was just gorgeous but you get up into this into the snow and it's just this endless white stretch with these black patches that you know and we looked at um they have live camps so you can go and like look at all the what it looks like around the mountain lodges and I was like oh cool there's some snow and some dirt no problem <laughs> you know little I, you know so we were you know we had a lot of information we just we just didn't didn't know but it's interesting that you can be in an age with so much information, with live webcams, like trained on areas like where you'll be walking and still be so clueless. It's kind of nice to be mm -hmm. free of, I, I don't know, there's something nice about the lack of information because certainly before the trip, um, I felt really oversaturated with storytelling. I just was, uh, I work as a translator, um, you know, I. I do readers' reports for agents and publishers. I write. I relax and watch television, and I just was like deadened by narrative. And it was really exciting to go out to a place where um, n there weren't going to be any stories coming at me, which actually ended up being sort of a false uh, hope because as soon as we were on the trail, um, we realized that everything we needed to find find out would be told to us in story form and the way we'd gather information you know we'd, we'd talk to people but you you kind of really got how mountain lore is built up you know and you could hear how stories moved along the mountain because everybody's walking at a kind of similar pace and um you know you stop at the cabins and a set of stories had arrived say the day before and they're passed on to you and you kind of have to do with them what you will was this person um did this person, did the person who told the story have, have something to prove? Um, did the person who told the story, did they have the right equipment? And that's why they found this part of the trail difficult. Um, 
you know, uh, anyway, I found this sort of flow of information across the mountain really fascinating, you know, yeah. especially thinking of like the American tradition of tall tales and or just how stories move. And that's why I like hanging out at Big Sur. Every Anytime I'm in California, um, I always go out to Big Sur and go just as far as I can and just sit down and look at the Pacific and say, okay, civilization's down there. I could die up there. <laughs> you know? And it's a nice it's a nice little getaway. So yeah. It sounds like your husband was well, first of all, your husband is a pimp, right? Because he he was <laughs> seemed like a rock in this for you, right? So you know, talk about your husband a little bit. Give him some props. David? I mean David's a, like a he's like a research master. He's just he's really, really good at researching and kind of amazing in mountain territories. Like he climbed some of the Bavarian Alps this summer and um, uh, early early on in our relationship he had wanted to climb um, the mountains in Snowdonia which are in Wales and ended up sort of on this knife edge ridge and to sort of illustrate how terrifying it was um, the woman in front of him was like you know, everybody's like shuffling very slowly around this ridge and along this ridge to get to the top of this peak where they can climb down the sort of a sort of slightly nicer path to get down. And this one woman in front of him was so frightened she wet herself, <laughs> you know, and like the experience, there were experienced climbers that were handling it much better. But I think generally nobody kind of understood exactly how terrifying it would be to basically be standing, you know, on the edge of a knife, sort of thousands yeah. of feet above the ground with sheer drops on either side. He's he's pretty amazing. And I think that trip kind of, um, changed him. So one of the things we wanted to do along with Johnny and Adela, um, was, uh, go into the, go into these wilderness spaces more often, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, was he my rock in this? Yeah, I guess it's, it's, it's really intense to feel so much fear in the proximity of three people that you love so much, you know, and that feeling of we're all, we're all, we're all doing this and we're all doing this together and you fall into these like silent patterns of care and uh, uh <laughs> yeah anyway um, <laughs> so you guys met in london right oh yeah yeah we did yeah. so how long have you uh, been we, married now mm, two years but we've been together for seven wow yeah it's been a while <laughs> how's that going the whole long term for life. Oh, it's fine. I've, I, I think I've always really wanted, uh, an adventure partner. I do a lot of, I've done a lot of moving and, um, I, I would like to keep on sort of exploring the world either by moving or through travel. And, uh, a, having an adventure partner felt really crucial. Um, cause I wanted to have someone sort of consistent to share things with me, but also to adventure with, you know? And I think that, that, is very much how our relationship is that we we adventure together you know we push each other in our careers in ways that i think are scary and that i guess you could classify as adventure <laughs> and you know like we moved to berlin together that was a big adventure and we're about to head off to california for a few months because we are going to escape the winter which is why i have no idea what the autumns are like in berlin because we tend to leave um, before it gets too dark and stormy 
But you were you you were born in America, right? Because I was born si- in Los Angeles. Gotcha. Because yeah. ever since I've ever met you, for some reason, I've had this wild notion in my head that you're from this other world across the ocean, and it's because you always talked about family who live there, right? Uh, do you have you, you have family live in? Is it Sweden, Norway? My or? mom, my mom's in Sweden. My little gotcha. sister's in Sweden now, and then my dad's uh, my dad's from Minnesota, but lives in LA. Gotcha. Uh, By the way, for a long time, the best avocados I've ever had are the ones that you've given me from his farm. Yeah, yeah, He's, <laughs> he grows the best avocados. <laughs> they're, it's just they're what awesome. he does. Yeah, ruins them for me everywhere else because I just can't wait to get home and cut one in half. <laughs> so why the transition <laughs> to, to to Berlin? I think it, you were. We were just talking before we started here, but uh, your husband's from from Germany. He's from Germany, and his his dad and his stepmom live in uh, in in Berlin, and his his mom also lives in Germany. Um, we both had been living in London for a really long time, and uh, I, I mean, when you and I met, that was in a weird sort of five year stint in a fifteen year period where I had been living in London. So I, I had this sort of little break from London and LA for a few years. I wanted to come back home for a while. Um, but I really thought that I was going to live in London forever, and I think so did he. Um, but we both really didn't want to give up on our, I, I guess, creative dreams. And um, I think we found ourselves working so much in London just to make rent that it didn't really make sense for us. And I, I'm not the kind of person, I can do a lot of stuff under pressure, but I, I'm, I'm, I've realized that I, I'm not... I'm not good at doing my own creative work when in the, like, I'm never going to be the person who like has the awesome job who comes home at sort of nine o'clock at night and then writes for three hours and then goes to sleep and wakes up. And, you know, like, yeah, I, I think my, <laughs> my creative work needs a lot more space. Uh, yeah. I commute and, three hours a day, work ungodly amounts of hours, come home, hang out with little girls. Then I hang out with yeah. my wife and then I scratch out whatever I can. I was writing on Saturdays, you know, like there are all these ways you try to make things happen and that was okay. But, um, I, we wanted to create space for ourselves and we had an opportunity to lower our living costs drastically in an interesting city with family, which was radical. Neither of us had really lived in the same country as our, as our, as our family in a really long time. And, uh, the city is really gentle, I think in a lot of ways, of course, the gentrification question is coming just as strong here, but um, they recently instituted like a rental cap, a uh, citywide rental cap. Um, and there are lots of laws like protecting renters. And so it's just harder to say flip properties. You know, right. I think you have to wait like like a decade or something like that before you can resell your house without a massive fine, which I guess doesn't matter to people who, who are incredibly wealthy, but it prevents... Right. It keeps things it it keeps things you know gentrifying probably slower than well than certainly slower than they have in London since I've been living there. That was a real shock to see a city change so drastically and to see so many of my creative friends just decamp or give up on their creative stuff and just jump wholeheartedly into the job that they never really wanted to have. Yeah. Hmm. That, that's my definition of hell. Isn't it though? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. 
So in, in a way, Berlin is a lot like Los Angeles, I think. It's a city where people come to realize a certain kind of dream. But it, it seems like there is um, this kind of neo expatriate scene going on out there now. A lot of Americans are, I, I know are in Berlin. Uh, a lot of people I knew from London are in Berlin. Um, it, it, and it doesn't just seem to be literature or writing or it seems to be across the the gambit you know art Mm. music literature everything it just seems like the place to go um it's it's a place to be right now uh yes is that right also yeah (laughs) no absolutely but i also think that that's been going on for quite um a long time i think it's really it's 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 really easy to think that it's something new but i'm always surprised how many people how many people I meet who have just been here for decades and decades and decades. Um, Like we just had dinner with a woman that was uh, touring in the seventies with a dance company who was just supposed to spend like 36 hours in Berlin. But in in those sort of 36 hours, she was like offered a gig at a major theater, offered a gig at something else that I can't remember and cast in a movie called City of Lost Souls, which is kind of like a German, um, like a Berlin Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, cool. And she ended up staying for six years, and it was really interesting meeting her because she was talking about Berlin with a kind of a really similar sort of wistfulness as, I don't know, people in L.A. might talk about Echo Park 10 years ago or downtown <laughs> you know, a few years ago, or downtown in the 80s, you know, everybody has those moments. But the the sort of exchange has been is has been going on for a long time, and I think has been really dynamic and interesting. But like, um, yes, there's definitely a really thriving, um, really, really thriving expat scene. And um, a lot of creatives, uh, a lot of ad people as well, um, they're building up the tech, they're trying to build it up as like a Silicon Valley type situation um the google campus is right down the street from my house you know it's um it's interesting it's interesting what what's going on yeah i get a lot of phone calls saying hey do you want to move to berlin we have a lot of advertising to do <laughs> like i don't really? know yeah i do all the time i, I get you should <laughs> the, the schools here are great like you should see the little kids in winter they're just these tiny little like starfish people in like puffy suits yeah. that are being led around by like the friendliest looking um like first grade teachers and stuff like it's it's adorable everything is walkable or it's a very neighborhood um focused city so you have this like you know a big european capital with a lot of international influx from conferences the berlin film festival um there's a big lit festival every september um you know but it's very clustered around walkable walkable neighborhoods which feels like such a false real estate term that started being used so much in LA but it's just what cities are (laughs) elsewhere (laughs) it's got a sidewalk buddy uh yeah it's walkable when you were talking about the little kids I was thinking about uh Christmas story you know gotta go to the bathroom everyone yeah I just imagine every kid just saying that over and over that's all they say (laughs) (laughs) or or licking licking the the light, the, the metal lamp post, and getting their tongue stuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. How's the writing going? How's it coming along? You, you, um, recently said you were working on your novel. Um, yeah. Is this the is this the same novel that I know about 
from years past or is this a new one? Can you can you give us any details on that at all? Yeah, of course. I mean, in my head, it's exactly in my head. It's it's the same book that I've been working on since you and I were at USC together. Um, but it's really not. I, it's been a really interesting process of um, trying to kill that thesis so that it doesn't breathe anymore. And then I can kind of extract the bits that are still glowing in in the sort of dead husk of my thesis and turn them into something better. Um, I, I write a lot about, um, so writing about the, um, walking is not sort of my thing. <laughs> what, it, but you do it so well. I Thank think, you. I think there could be a whole <laughs> volume of walking stories. I, you know, Stephen I mean, King wrote a walking book. I talked about that on my last, my last episode. Yeah. You know, so You can do it. There are a lot of really great people who do walking books. I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, my friend Lauren uh, Elkin, who's uh, living, I mean, speaking of thriving expat communities, Paris has one as well. It's a lot of really interesting people from the States and, and elsewhere living there. But she's written a book about female flinners and or flinnesses. I can't pronounce French words. I'm sorry. But um, anyway, or like Robert McFarlane or, I mean, Will Self and so many people who do like truly excellent walking stuff i this just felt like a story i really wanted to to tell because it was so uh, challenging yeah <laughs> but but I, I usually write about um like sex and power to put it really baldly um i think you just and, got a lot of readers <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think it's all you got to walk into a room and say, I'll walk up. I write about sex and power. Three, yeah. three book deal. <laughs> Done. Let's do this. Oh, God, if only. That would be so nice. <laughs> mm. What outfit should I be wearing when I walk into a room and say that, Dustin? Should, I'm going like, to leave that one up like... to you. <laughs> Uh, you know, you're kind of like, should it be pretty severe tailoring? Should I be working with like non-natural fabrics? You know, anyway. Can never go wrong <laughs> with a pencil skirt. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, so it's about sex and power. Um, um, is that... Don't, yeah, you, you want, want, you want you, me to tell you about it? Yeah, if you want to, if you feel comfortable with that. I don't want you to kind of uh, talk yourself into a corner that when you're done with it, you're like, shit. Actually, I wrote about unicorns. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> unicorn sex and power that's awesome it's all about the horn <laughs> <laughs> um i i don't know i i guess i so when you and i were at usc i had a really interesting kind of i, I had a really unexpected and interesting group of friends um one of my really close like childhood friends moved in with this girl who um kind of had this house that she uh, was renting out different rooms to different people. And they all happened to be sort of from the kind of S&M community. And I mean, this is obviously like pre 50 shades of gray and stuff, you know, workshopping stories about kink at USC in 2004 was kind of hilarious. Well, the precursor to, were... I don't mean to interrupt you there, <laughs> but uh, you know, everyone is probably going to say, Oh, 50 shades of gray. But yeah. <laughs> let's just agree right now, that's not what S and M and sex is really all about. That that's a whole that's like it's like um at the end of that book and at the end of that movie they should have put the the more you know star. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the after school yeah. special of sex and 
in S&M. I, I watched it on a plane recently, um, oh, okay. the Fifty wow. Shades of Grey movie, because <laughs> I'm really stupid on planes. I can't focus on anything serious, so I was like, okay, I'm not going to be able to like appreciate any of the actual good movies, and I've already watched the comedies I wanted to watch, so um, let's fast forward through Fifty Shades of Grey. And I was like, oh, man, this is just a movie about signing a contract. Yeah, it is. It's, I, <laughs> I looked at my wife and said, wow, this is contract the movie. This is what <laughs> I know, right? And I mean, contracts are really fun. Contract negotiation is really fun. Like all these, you know, like it's a part of um, my old job as a publicist that I really liked um, working around contracts and with contracts. And, you know, it's something I deal with a lot as a translator. But yeah, I mean... Hmm. <laughs> I feel like contract negotiation probably, you know, is, is yeah. from I from what I understood of it, sort of from the group of friends that I had, was a much more sort of sensual and intuitive process and filled with great communication. But this like dry sort of blue silver tone, you know, <laughs> um, meetings and yeah. Anyway, you know, it was like watching a boring contract with some red shoe diaries put in there. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the constant repetition of uh, Christian saying, "I don't do that. That's not what I do," and then he ends up doing all those things anyway. Yeah, yeah. it was a bad movie. Let's stop talking about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Damn it! It got us. <laughs> I know. Uh, still, 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 they won't let us stop. She's gotten into our minds. But so there was this house. Like, just imagine the television show Friends except instead of those people doing what they did, the sort of whatever, Monica's a chef or whatever. The, I mean, everybody had their, their jobs and whatnot, but imagine friends, but everybody's kinky. And that it was a really, I was 23 and it just blew my mind. I'd never met people who were so communicative and responsible in negotiating. Um, I mean, forget the sexual part of the relationships, just the romantic side of, of love. I'd never known anybody to be so open and communicative about um, both love and sex. And so I decided I was going to write a book of all, of all their stories, like how they came to be where they were and blah, blah, blah. And the book is just not good. It's just boring and really worthy because I was so in love with the subject matter. And But the sort of themes, are th they're themes that I've, the themes of sex and power and um, relationship dynamics and, you know, how the, the, the sort of transactional nature of relationships that indeed all relationships are transactional to an extent, but, um, you know, sometimes those transactions can be more insidious and sometimes they can be loving transactions like the push and pull of, you know, being married that usually doesn't feel icky. It's just what you do. You make space, you give space. Yeah. You know? So what I've noticed, because I'm still, uh, actually, I, I'm going to toot my own horn here, and uh, I just finished my novel. Oh, and, congratulations, yeah, thank Justin. You. That's awesome. I know, right? My buddy keeps wanting me to send him a picture of me smoking a cigarette, drinking champagne at the same time. Yes, uh, I would <laughs> like that picture as well, please. <laughs> but I told him I, I'll do that when I, if I ever sell it. So I'm working through the second draft, and it's taken me a very long time to write the book. But in the book, it spans across the lifetime from a boy who was 11 all the way up till he's in his mid-late 30s. And when I started writing it at USC, I didn't know anything about marriage. You know, We were still in the immature stages. 
sure. uh, you know, doing the whole thing. And, uh, you know, we did some dumb shit and we came out for the better. Um, I didn't have children. I didn't know what true loss really is until you sure. until you have children <laughs> and you start thinking about the dark shit that can go wrong in the world. Yeah. It's like you really don't have knowledge of what true loss is. You know what I mean? It's it's different, you know. And uh, it, I've, I've found that I needed that long period of time to actually mature. You know, I thought I was mm. really mature then, but no. And I'm not oh saying, my god, I was so mature yeah. when I was 23. It was like the most mature. <laughs> and I'm not even saying that that I'm mature now, but I needed that th- those years of experience to be able yeah. just to to write the book. And do you find that is is something that you felt and to like grow um, grow cynical about things as well? Yeah, <laughs> a exa- bit. yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I've yeah. always been a cynical person, so I, I don't know what you're talking about. But you know, um, I just I just felt that I needed those many, many years of living to be able to actually sit down and write again and finish it. And when I left Los Angeles, I felt that I, I couldn't really write anything until I, I wrote that book, but I needed the maturity level for it. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've written poetry and things in the middle and no one's read anything of mine. And I'm just kind of stuck in this working man's advertising world. But, you know, do you feel that you needed that uh, view on things to look back to be able to finish? Um, I think, it, I think, yeah, absolutely. And, and also, um, also both that, that, and also just getting to be a better writer. Cause I think one of the questions aside from how you, I think you've just put it perfectly about having the distance um, and time to kind of, well, you know, grow and, and see and have a better perspective. But also, um, I think a really big question for me was always, how do I want to debut? Because, um, uh, you know, I, I used to work at a, at a um, sort of business-to-business magazine for the porn industry. And I would see, you know, I, on my radar were a ton of really good, like, erotic anthologists and people doing, you know, really interesting work. But I was always like, eh, I don't know if that's, how I want to debut or like, I've always been really, I've always really needed people that I can look to just to have a, an idea of how a career can move. And I just didn't really find that in the people that I was looking at in that context. And, um, I I think I, I had the slow realization that I really, you know, I used to really, all I used to want to do was write for magazines, you know, and I did for a long time. And I realized slowly slowly that that wasn't the kind of storytelling I was most interested in so I felt like I really needed to do a heck of a lot of learning and about you know the kind of writing that I like to read and that I felt was good that I don't know I had different interests when I was doing when we were doing our MFA together you know yeah so to sort of sit down and be like oh shit this is the kind of novel that I would like to write Maybe I can't, you know, but this is what I want to, this is what I'm striving for. So I, I knew that I just needed to get, become a better writer. That's a big, long, humbling process. Yes. You know? Yes, it is. <laughs> and I was reading back and I was like, man, I really, 
was not that great. <laughs> <laughs> and look how smug I was. God, yeah. How smug. I don't even know what that word <laughs> means. I used a SARS there. I, I know I did. <laughs> <laughs> that word definitely means what I think it means. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do I really need to des- <laughs> do I really need to describe me walking across the room? What the hell? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you're talking about AVN, right? And uh, that was back in the heyday when we first met. And uh, I want to let you know, I'm still waiting on my box of porn that you never sent me. Oh, my God. I gave it. I put all my porn in the <clears throat> trunk of my ex-boyfriend's car, and we don't speak anymore. Shall we? And um, I don't know what he did with them. But I'm really, I really regret it because he had all, like, the best. It was it was all the award-nominated pornography from 2000 and I want to say eight. That was a good year. <laughs> it was some good stuff. And now I was like, oh, maybe I want to pick. I'm like, damn, porn is really expensive. It is. Like, I, can't, I can't just go pick that up. That's why I do the free snippets online. <laughs> you know, I can't afford that shit. Yeah. That's <laughs> expensive. <clears throat> so let's talk more about sex. Okay. Uh, but I am going to point out that you still owe me a box of porn. Okay. You okay. still do. I, I'll... Yeah, you can send it at Christmas. Great time. At Christmas. Great time of year um, for porn. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna have to figure out how to make good on my promise. Send me, send me some good stuff from Berlin. I've never seen anything from Berlin. You know, um, I I went to uh, Helsinki in May. Um, there was the first, the sort of inaugural um, Viva Erotica Festival, which is a sort of erotic slash porn film festival run by cinephiles. Um, there's a critic called Olaf Müller, um, who's a sort of prominent, I think, English language and German language film critic. And, oh, no, he definitely writes in English all over the place. He's a good critic. And then, weirdly, a girl I went to university with um, in England in the early 2000s, and she decided that she wanted to start this film festival. And we, there was a woman who came from the uh, Werkstatt Kino in Munich, who brought a bunch of Super 8 films that she had made. So the Werkstatt Kino is like a film collective. Yeah. They have a cinema. The cinema is cooperatively run. All the guys got really, all the people that were part of the collective were really into Super 8 filmmaking because it was very in vogue at the time that it was very popular. So what are we thinking? Like, what is that? Early 80s? Late Uh, 70s? Yes. I want to say so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of jaded. I'm kind of wonky because when i went to college you know we rediscovered super eight and really right. uh, everything we shot was super eight so um yeah. yeah i think it was 70s 80s but she brought all these super eight films and one of them was shot in berlin and they were these quite sort of high-minded they she was adamant that they weren't porn she was like no they're fuck films they're absolutely not pornography they're like films that are about sex and she brought some really dark stuff there is this <laughs> one where in fact she um had this sort of dark very dark breakfast you know there was an orange and there was coffee and there was eggs and she was filled with despair and ended and then she started sort of using the breakfast situation as erotic props and then the super eight film concluded with her um, making love to herself with a knife uh to dire effect and um uh, yeah so when you say bring me porn from berlin no like no no <laughs> bring me some from sweden a- <laughs> they seem more uh, they seem to be more pacifist there's there's, <laughs> fantas- there's there's some fantastic stuff from sweden actually i know exactly what i'm gonna get you all right let's do it 
Yeah. I'm all can about I send it. you a can I send you a porn rather than a box? <laughs> uh as long as it's like a multi-pack with four different movies okay. on it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Continuing talking about sex, um, I, I want to go back to uh, when I first met you in California, and I remember meeting you and uh, getting to know you better, and it was really nice to meet someone who was open and just could sit there and talk about anything and not hide behind it, because, you know, in America, we hide behind this veil of, you know, no one has sex, and for the most part, and um, you know, once that gate was open, you you talked freely about it, um, and you know, we just shot the shit, and it was nice because you don't meet a lot of women in the world who can just come out and be one hundred percent honest. And I just wanted to let you know I appreciate that, and you're very awesome because <laughs> be, because it, there's so much stigma involved with it. You know, it's like. There are two things in this world there's too much stigma involved in that need more attention, and that's suicide and sex. And we don't hmm. give either one enough attention, and it's just ridiculous, you know? So your last podcast, you covered suicide, so now you got me on, and we can cover sex. Ah, didn't think about that, <laughs> you know? It's like the, the theater mask, you know? One side suicide, <laughs> one side sex. We're covering that shit right off the bat. Um, you know, how did, how did you get to be that free I'm a pretty free person. I can go up and talk yeah. to anybody, but you seem to be really free about it. So how did you how did you come to be in that kind of everyday thinking and existence? And how can we bottle that shit up and give it to every other tight ass in the world? Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's all right. Um I I really don't I, I don't know, but I think about it a lot. Um, not sex, but why. And um, also sex, obviously. Yeah. But um, I don't really know. I think I, I think on, I think some I think everybody is probably due to nature, due to nurture, born with some sort of filter through which they kind of naturally see the world. And um, there's this. Oh my gosh, what is the quote? There's a quote by um, Camille Paglia about, um, oh gosh, I really can't remember it. Never mind. It, basically, it's, it's bad <laughs> that I can't remember it because it's, it's the quote that really started me off on my novel. And it, it's basically about how she, she declares in this quote that she is a pornographer. And ever since she's, she was a child, she was alive to the sort of sensual possibility of everything in the world. And kind of she, you know, that she felt really in tune with the animal energies of everything from the kind of icons in churches to um, blooming flowers in nature kind of thing. Um, it's from a really great essay where I think she's talking about Andrea Dworkin, which um, anyway, it's a fantastic quote and it's a fantastic essay. And I don't know, I think that's probably part of it. I think that's maybe just one way that I've sort of naturally I'm inclined to make sense of the world in terms of intimacy and human contact. But also, you know, I, I, I grew up with a, you know, a European mom who didn't really have many hangups around that kind of thing. You know, she is an Austrian lady who um, lived 
in Sweden in the 60s, which was kind of, you know, it was, it was a, 60s and 70s was a real heyday for Sweden also in terms of kind of sexual liberation and, um, you know, gender equality, which it always blows my mind how just fundamentally the Swedes I know think of equality. You know, it's not even a question. It's just this given and they don't quite understand why it comes up in conversation sometimes. Like, there is no difference. We are just humans. Men, women, it doesn't really matter that there's a distinction, even though we, our bodies have different functions, you know? Mm. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't think I grew up with a lot of shame. And which doesn't mean that I'm shameless. It just, uh, I just don't think I learned to see life the the different aspects of life as uh disjointed i think i just they they form part of a whole you know there's no shadow side in a way you know yeah Dr dream life sex life fantasy life um even your dark like anger impulses or whatever you know it's it's just all part of the same package i guess gotcha so would you consider yeah. yourself a sort of a feminist Oh, sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... There seems right. like there's, I, like, 800 factions <clears throat> of feminism today. Um, do you feel that way, or is it just different belief systems within the title or the, the term? I mean, it's just... It's, it's really simple at its core. It's just, you know, you believe in, I guess, what, gender equity, that we're just... You know, you, you believe in this fundamental equality, and that seems... I think it's kind of weird that it, it, it... Does it really need to be called feminism, or does it just need to be called equality? But then, of course, there's so many different... I think the groups start to splinter when you have lots of different interests being represented. You know, I mean, I mentioned um, Andrea Dworkin, and she, like, you know, she just has this really bizarre view of sex in my perspective, that I'm sure is very normal to many people. Or I, I used to work for this feminist pornographer, and we just did not agree on what feminist porn was. And she was like, well, I make porn according to my vision. There's never any anal. Um, and the woman always comes. And like, she just had these rules. And I thought, but, and we talk about this looks. I'm like, wait, but I'm a feminist. And you agree that I'm a feminist. And I like these things in pornography and in in the bedroom. So... But, and, you know, and she just, but that's how she had decided that she was going to bring her feminist voice into the world. And what was nice is that she, you know, I didn't think she was wrong and she didn't think I was wrong. And we didn't hate each other because our views differed. But it was interesting to feel that we were so united in a kind of mission to, you know, that we really believed in sort of adding different voices to the landscape of pornographic film I just just her voice was not my voice you know and I think yeah. it just comes down to that how do you feel about Playboy getting rid of nudity I'm kind of excited really explain it because you're the first I mean, you're the first woman <laughs> I've asked so I'm very I'm, I'm very interested in getting your point of view on that okay I mean early Playboy you have like <clears throat> like think about Marilyn Monroe and her her Playboy shoot, right? Like just these really sort of natural, earthy, like luscious women. And I feel like the the taste of the magazine comparatively over the years has become slightly bizarre. You know, the kind of 
which is the women that, that sort of when you the Playboy Bunny today, you think of you don't think of um, you know Monroe or Gloria Steinem. You think of what's the name of the chick, the the Hefner wife with the blonde and the just that sort of that look, that very accepted sort yeah. of blonde and um, kind of a Malibu Barbie kind of thing. Modern right? plastic is what I call it. <clears throat> Modern plastic, yeah, it's a really good one. And it's a really widely accepted look. Like, it's definitely no longer only porn that where you can look like that. It's just for some reason we can all look like that now, which is cool because I think the possibility of body modification, whether you're doing it via ex- being experimental with your clothing style or, you know, collagen injections, it's it's interesting to be so malleable as humans, but um, it, it can feel kind of sinister. So I think it'll be really interesting to see what they do do because I think I think I saw I saw a picture that made me that I don't know it was just kind of stray on the internet it was um you know it looked like it was shot in like <clears throat> anywhere between like 1973 and 1987 and it was a, a girl in like a white tennis outfit mm. walking down <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> So there's this picture of this girl in this tennis white tennis outfit and she's not wearing any panties and she's just kind of strolling along the tennis green and has like lifted up her skirt. Yeah. She's really, really nice ass. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you know, beautiful legs. And I was thinking, I wonder if Playboy is going to kind of go for this, you know, cause there's so many phenomenal erotic photographers working out there that could, you know, play if they're going to keep the visual component that could really, um, you know, they could really do good in elevating erotic photography yeah. again you know bringing new focus onto it at the same time you know the sort of literary history of playboy as we know is is phenomenal and it would be i think really i mean it's very of the times to want to return to kind of a glory glory days of long reads and more in-depth journalism i mean it's not just playboy it's a ton of you know so yeah. many outlets have the guardian and launched a long read and platforms yeah. like narratively and um God knows what everybody. I mean, like reportage is is back in a really nice way. You know, I think so. it's gonna. I think it's gonna do really well. It's gonna do really well for ad dollars. <laughs> yeah, you think? Be, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Because now you have some higher end people who want the prestige of the magazine mm. that will their board and their corporation will allow them to to uh, advertise there now where, where they couldn't before. And um, mm. as long as they don't go toward the route of Maxim and all those other bro magazines, sure. I, I think they're going to do really well. It's just interesting because I haven't really had a chance to ask many women about it. You know, well, it, it'll be interesting to see how they articulate their perspective. You know, because I think when you think of Playboy in the early days and throughout the seventies and eighties, I think of a really distinct perspective. But the Playboys that I've read, you know. Are, are good it's always a good magazine you know but that that sort of distinct perspective i think they can really go back and re-articulate who they are in a in a meaningful way i don't know i'm i'm usually really excited about change anyway so yeah it would got a lot right? of potential yeah. yeah so there's a there's a question there's a question that i like to ask people in general and to catch them off guard a little bit. So be prepared. 
More, more than um, your husband was a rock, please tell me how. That was confusing to me because I feel like we were also destroyed during that trek, that we all had our yeah. moments where we were um, both a tiny little worm and somebody else's rock. But the way you present your husband in the story, it, it seems like he was always there when you needed him most, you know? And uh, That's good because it was so very <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were definitely the, the crazy thing just before you scare me with your next question. Um, the crazy <laughs> thing about about that track was that, you know, you just like, I think at very. So we met this guy um, who apparently worked with like um, like programming GPS maps or something. Uh -huh. And he didn't hike with a map. He didn't hike with snowshoes. He had this giant pack that was like the size of a small rhinoceros. And when we met him, he just seemed kind of really unhinged. And then we met him, like, when we met him in the middle of the trail briefly, and then he just, like, disappeared, and we didn't know if we'd ever see him again. When we finally got to the cabin, he was there and had thought out a bit and, like, was speaking in full sentences, and we realized we, we all probably seemed a bit crazy when we encountered each other on the trail. <laughs> but he, one of the first questions he asked us was, like, um, so, uh, any of you turn into a little bitch out there? Okay. And we were like, huh? And he's like, Every, I turned into a little bitch. Everybody turns into a little bitch sometimes. And it, it was just that moment of like, when you're in these situations, there will be a point where you're just like, where you just snap. Yeah. You know, well, it sounded like dude needed was, a travel companion. <laughs> he, he was, he was ours for a while. He was ours at the, towards the end of the trip, which was, which was really fun. He taught us a lot about, um, uh, dehydrating fruit and optimum packing. And he, that guy's been all over the world. Yeah. yeah. But, um, that sort of, I think all of us at some point turned into a little bitch where it was just like, you're just going to throw in the towel and you're going to sit right down in the snow and you're going to wait until it melts, even if it takes six weeks, <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, it was a very good-natured question. I hope that comes across. Um, it made us all laugh. Anyway, uh, please scare me with you your ready? question. Yeah. You ready for this one? Mm -hmm. Here we go. Saskia. Dustin. What do you want out of life? Oh, Oh, that's a really nice one. Um, I think what I have right now, I, I have time to pursue the things that I love and I'm able to, to support myself on those things. And um, uh, I have a companion that I really love. I really love my friends and I'm very mobile, you know, and which is, I think, especially important to me because my family is so spread out. So it's always been really essential that I have enough money to go to California and the flexibility to go back home for a while. Yeah. Hang out with my dad because I miss him, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that wasn't that scary. It could be. It can be. That just means you really know what you want. That's always a good thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I want to do all the usual stuff, the ambitious stuff. Like, I want to publish my book and uh, I'd like to finish it. That would be good. <laughs> um. <laughs> That's always the hardest thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when psychologically I've been working on it for a decade, but realistically I've only been working on this novel possibly like properly writing it for about like, you know, six to eight months. I know, of, right? Of, like, that's, you know. <laughs> that's what I just told my <laughs> I just had that conversation with my wife. She goes, finish the damn book already. I'm like, well, honey, I've been, been thinking about it for a very long time, but I've only <laughs> been writing it for a good four months, you know? Yeah. So. It's so funny. It's because you have to like kill it. You have to kill it so many times. 
times, you know? I feel like you have to kill your novel so many times before it's the novel that you want it to be. Yeah. Well, you, know, you have to have the guts to be like, no, not this one. Sorry. New start. And uh, New chapter. Know, when I used to write scripts, you know, I used to have that mentality. But writing this book, I kind of seem to be the opposite. Uh, I haven't been doing a lot of killing because I've been kind of very particular in how I construct it and build it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've been very meticulous on building it. And I never want to do a novel that way again. But instead oh. of killing things, I've been searching for things. You know what I mean? Nice. So I, I, I've been on this journey of searching and, and architecting instead of mm -hmm. just getting it out there and killing. And it's oh, a very nice. slow, arduous process. But again, going back, I needed that time. Yeah, for sure. And I think coming coming back to thought, like a thought can be really grounding if you're feeling kind of uh like if if it starts to feel like coming back to like a thought structure can be really useful but um i think when I, what i mean by killing is that I, I just feel like the story i wanted to tell was so sprawling initially you know i have had all these a series of sort of writerly epiphanies where i'm like oh shit i'm actually working on I actually have three different novels that I have ideas for. And so I need to pick one and then focus on that one. And then the reason I didn't finish my novel yeah. this September or for by September this year was because I realized I'd been writing a novel with one too many significant characters. Yeah, so that always sucks. I need to go back and overhaul. <laughs> but at least yeah. that's still the same novel. Like that's not like a new novel. That's like the same novel, just minus one character. <laughs> Yeah, I used to do that shit all the time. You put anyway. that one extra character in, you don't want to kill him off, so I ended up just writing a new movie for that person and then coming back oh, and good. finishing the other script. I've always sucked. had such an yeah. exciting script life. I remember that film you did in, like, Argentina? Uh, Chile. Chile. We did a Chile. film in Chile. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, those were the good old days, but I'm I'm honestly glad they're behind. It was a, it was, it was a different Dustin. So hmm. uh, moving on. <laughs> so I have two more questions for you, and then you know, I'll let you go. Great. Um, just simple ones, so not, not as tough as the other one, even though you're a champ. Um, what's your favorite book? Mm, there's one that I feel like I always try to make people read because I love it so much. Um, it's called Netsuke, and it's by, uh, you know that Steely Dan song, Ricky, Don't Lose This Number? Yeah. It's written, that song's written about the, the author, Ricky Ducournay. Okay. Fun fact, nobody in Europe <laughs> has gotten that one yet, which is, I'm really happy because I'm like, oh, good. Someone, someone <laughs> understands my reference. Um, it's, this, it's this beautiful short novel about um, uh, a therapist, uh, an, an analyst who lives in, like, sort of the Pacific Northwest and has a Japanese wife who's a an artist and keeps the house very beautifully, but he's kind of this horrible person Ugh. who keeps two separate rooms for his clients. He sees spells and drear and in drear, that's where he sees the clients that he's not planning on having sex with. Oh. And in spells, that's the room where he sees the people he's planning on seducing. So it's this sort of portrait of the psyche of this man who, you know, is kind of like hurtling towards a kind of destruction but it's offset by this kind of the beauty of his wife whose perspective comes in later and it's just it's just this beautiful perfect kind of gem of a novel i really love it um i also really like tom robbins i think still life with woodpecker was one of my favorite books for a really long time <laughs> I've, I've never I even heard that, of that one 
as in Oh, it's great. I mean, his sort of like fairy tale novels for adults kind of thing with his intense amounts of research around sort of tiny factoids that mm -hmm. make reading, that give it that sort of addictive, like popping Skittles kind of feeling, you know? Nice. I have to check that out. That's not an unintentional drug reference, is it? I really do just mean like eating popping a bag Skittles. of Skittles. Nah, we was at the club <laughs> popping Skittles, man. <laughs> you know, like we do. Yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, remember Justin? Remember then? Remember when? You're honestly asking the wrong guy, you know, unless it's Xanax whiskey or cigarettes. <laughs> I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know anymore. I'm so uncool. Uh, yeah. It was popping Skittles, man. Maybe it's a skateboard move. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you reading right now oh god so much um what am i reading right now uh so i i recently um actually this week um this short this uh, series is being launched by redux which is an, an english language publisher in berlin and they do like these teeny teeny books that are sort of how big are they the size of two cigarette packs approximately and sort okay. of 64 pages at the max. Right. And so, you know, there's sort of each book is the price of a cup of coffee. And there a lot of them are in translation. And I found this, um, you know, it's, it's a really embarrassing story or a stroke of luck, luck kind of story. She told me she was doing a series about kind of literature that focuses on sex. And um, I was like, I really want to find a forgotten Swedish eroticist. And I basically typed that into Google and then found one which you know is really nice but it's kind of it's such a lame story <laughs> um so <laughs> so i've been i've been reading a lot about so i translated um ruth hiller ruth ruth hiller's um uh first novel i've translated a bunch of it as a sort of standalone extract for this redux series uh the story is called the black curve and i am just trying to get really really into her so i'm reading her biography and her diaries she's sort of like a swedish anaismen you know all of her work like nin is sort of a again the sort of portrait of a psyche you know it's, it's interesting um what else very cool reading a lot of swedish books because i translate from swedish and one must do such things <laughs> that sounds like an <laughs> awesome job though that sounds like a really yeah cool. i love it it's really it's really great it's really really great um Oh, I was reading Catherine Lacey's Nobody Is Ever Missing. Is that, that good? That's a good book. Is it a good book? Yeah, it's a yeah, it really is. It's um it's a book about a girl who uh just kind of walks away from her life and goes hitchhiking through New Zealand. Very cool. Um it's a novel uh about grief, but it's yeah, it's really it's really good and wonderful and a bit strange. I like I that. I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. I have to check that out. Yeah, what about you? What are you reading? Ah, oh, what the fuck am I reading right now? Um I am currently reading, oh, The Paris Wife. Uh, oh, cool. yeah. Have you read that? Mm -mm. No. Uh, it's about um, uh, Hadley, the uh, first wife of, of Hemingway, the wife of Hemingway. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's from her point of view, and it's about the time that they, they met in, um, I want to say Wisconsin or, or Chicago, somewhere in Illinois. They met in Illinois. And uh, it's about their kind of burgeoning love and then them getting married and their life and how it's kind of falling apart as well. Um, oh, cool. I didn't think I would like the book. Um, my wife wanted to read it. I picked it up. 
and I have tons of books that I haven't gotten to read yet. So I just walk downstairs, go to the shelf, pick one up. You know, I don't even look anymore. I just grab one <laughs> so I don't judge, you know, or else sure. I'll never read anything. Well, so it's I, a well-curated library that allows you to have the confidence to do that, right? Yeah, yes, as I, <laughs> as I crinkle my bow tie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing like the Barnes & Noble discount section. Um, so yeah, I grabbed it. I, I, as I was flipping through the first couple of chapters, I, w- I wasn't really feeling it. And I give books five to ten chapters, depending mm-hmm. on how long the chapters are. Very short chapters in this book. And about chapters six or seven, it really kicked in. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. I've never been a huge Hemingway fan, and I'll probably mm-hmm. get shot on the street for that. But um, um, it's, it's just knowing all the stories and the, the myths and um, all the shitty things that people say about him in real life, it's kind of getting justified because there was a lot of historical research that kind of went into this book as well. And so it was oh, kind wow. of a nice uh, introspective into the the man that no one really has ever gone into unless you've picked up his books and volumes of books of letters that he's written. Um, is it is it nonfiction? It uh, it's a it's historical fiction. Oh, okay. Yeah, historical fiction. So I'm sure there's some things in there that you know, because no one actually went in and did an autobiography of Hadley. You know, so oh, right. <laughs> um, but. It's a good introspective into what it takes or what it took back then for this man to to be what he thought a man should be, you know. And, oh, that's really interesting, yeah. which and is a, such a huge, compelling question around Hemingway. Exactly. So it's it's was he really that man? No. It he was acting like what he thought it should be to be a manly man because mm-hmm. he had so many insecurities. And sure. this this novel kind of goes into those because it does take from some letters from them. It takes from letters that he's written himself and, and then fills in the holes. But it just kind of makes that check mark saying, hey, um, you know, he was just an asshole. He was an, a- an insecure <laughs> little baby asshole. And uh, just because he used his brute and force and size to pretty much, you know, bludgeon his way in. And he did. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's really good take. It's really good take. I I yeah, I'd recommend it for sure. If if you're really into, if you want to get deeper into Hemingway, and if your wife wants another Hemingway wife recommendation, there's a there's a novel told from the perspective of each of his four wives by Naomi Wood called Mrs. Hemingway. That's oh, really? supposed to be really good. Yeah, and then there's something called the Hemingway Cookbook, <laughs> which is which is like basically just. Hemingway's recipes, recipes collected from, you know, journals, novels, blah, blah, blah. And um, my my husband made, um, oh, he made a dish called sauce. And it was basically like, like a giant slow cooked like tub of like all the meats. There was like a chicken and there was (laughs) chunks of ham and you ended in a bunch of like sherry. It was basically half a bottle of sherry and like 17 kilos of meat. And you end up with this, and the recipes are delicious. But we've cooked a few. We've cooked a few from um, the cookbook. I think there's a recipe for lion. One should obviously never cook lion, or yeah. make sure that lion can be cooked. Lion should be left to roam. But um, it's a it's interesting in that way because it's sort of this 
wonderful historical document that also has got some damn good recipes. Have to check that out. Lots, lots of butter, lots of alcohol. Um, Perfect. So, yeah, I, I am, I am southern, so. <laughs> You should get your hands on that. It's a really nice little cookbook. Definitely. Well, Saskia, it's been a goddamn pleasure to sit down and talk with you. I miss you, you, Dustin. I miss you too. It's been way too long. Way too long. Anyway. (laughs) So thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you, Dustin. Thank you for having me. It was such a pleasure, and I wish you all the best with this podcast. I'm excited that I'm excited that it exists. Thank you. I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you guys for listening in to part two of Saskia's Two-Parter. If you haven't already, please take a listen to a reading of Down the King's Trail in part one. Also, be sure to check Saskia out on Twitter at Saskia Vogel or over at her website, saskiavogel.com. Down the King's Trail is published in the latest issue of Elsewhere, a journal of place. So go and check it out too at elsewhere-journal.com. Saskia's been on fire lately, man. She has another essay entitled The Mango King Up for the World to See at Catapult. That's over at catapult.co. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at B underscore particular or by visiting our site, beparticularoutthere.com. Subscribe to the show at iTunes or wherever you dig listening to podcasts. We're taking reviews, guys. So please take a moment and let us know what you think. It'll help us out tremendously. And if you want to do it the old-fashioned way, just send us a message at letters at beparticularoutthere.com. We also just started a Facebook, so hope to see you there as well. We have a couple of corrections to highlight because, well, I'm a bit of a fucking idiot. In episode two, be particular out there, meaning in retrospect, inside my own closing remarks, I referred to my own grandfather as Carson Leo Thomas Jr. In fact, he is El Senor. I told you I was an idiot. Sorry about that, Paul Paul. And uh, in episode three, part one, which just aired, I said that we're on LinkedIn. I meant Instagram. So why in the fuck would we be on LinkedIn anyway? So sorry about that one, guys. My apologies. Thanks again for listening in to this two-part special with Saskia Vogel. And until next time, be particular out there.